there's a lot of podcasts out there. So thanks for being with us today. Before we get started, I just want to say we're going to be covering some difficult topics. And one thing that's helped me is reaching out to a friend or family member just to talk when it feels like a lot. This is a friendly reminder that you should take care of yourself too. In today's episode, we're going to talk about how millions of people with ME and other diseases have been called hysterical. And this ancient pseudoscience psychiatric term is still used to dismiss people today, despite the fact the American Psychiatric Association removed it from its Manual of Disorders in 1980. Hey team, I'm Ash Kelly. This is I Am Madeline, Episode 2. I began writing about Madeline after a mutual friend alerted me to her situation. At the time, I was working in breaking news radio, so I told her story as best as I could to my audience, but I only had about 40 seconds to squeeze it all in. And shortly after that story came out in July 2020, Madeline began recording a series of tapes. She called them the maid tapes, as in medical assistance in dying. She asked me to share her story after her scheduled death, but since then she's let us know it's okay to share them with you now. This was recorded from the floor of her 300 square foot Vancouver apartment. So it is, the hell day is it? August 12th and I am going to be talking and cleaning at the same time. She's doing the best she can to make her home presentable before a building manager and fire inspector come to check her fire alarm. To accomplish this, I have had to take a a truly ridiculous amount of supplements. She's maxed out on the dosages of several supplements, some of which cost more than a dollar a pill in order to get this task done. It's something she has to contend with every six months or so. And of course, because I've been feeling so unwell, uh, my apartment is a, a raging hot mess. So uh, I'm not even like attempting to make it clean, you know, not truly. I'm just sort of aiming for it to be a little less horrifying. It's taken me the whole day. It's almost too old. Sorry. And this is the sounds I'll be making as I get up and down. Uh, and this is me at a, a a better level of pain. You know, the grandpa sounds, as I call them. Sorry. And that's the thing, too, I need to stop doing is apologizing when I have to do things like, you know, make grandpa sounds as I... I try to move. I feel like anybody's listening, um, then I, I kind of, the urge is to hide. The urge is to hide that, that distress. Um, my poor neighbor has been listening to me curse <laughs> every time I have to get up. I mean, like, so I, I apologize in advance. If I end up um, having to curse, but, you know, it kind of is what it is. This crap needs to get done. But uh, I've been doing going on phone calls with people while I do it because it helps distract me from the pain of doing it. You would have to be immensely cruel or ignorant or both to think Madeline is faking it and that this pain is all in her head. But that's what she's heard from friends, doctors, and other medical professionals. Sadly, her experience is far from unique. Myalgic encephalomyelitis patients like Madeline are notoriously underdiagnosed, misdiagnosed, and disbelieved when they report pain and other symptoms. They don't receive assistance at home, despite somewhere around a quarter of sufferers being bedridden. Their symptoms are brutal, the pain is undeniable, so why has it been so easy for so many millions of people with chronic pain and illness to be told the same thing for millennia, that they're faking it or hysterical. The problem is rooted in this insidious ancient idea that women, their bodies, and their minds are weak. 
that we are somehow inherently dishonest, lazy, and the result has been violent and traumatic for women throughout history, from being punished for infertility to being burned at the stake as witches in the Middle Ages. Society and technology have changed a lot over the last few thousand years, but these stereotypes of hypochondria and hysteria, mad women and disability malingering, create a dynamic that when women enter the healthcare system, they are being underdiagnosed and misdiagnosed at sometimes twice the rate of men. But men are being punished by this brutal sexism as well. While most ME-CFS sufferers are women, around 25% are male, and none of the research takes into account any other expression of gender, of which there are many. Anyone who gets ME-CFS is likely to suffer for years before they're properly diagnosed with the degenerative disorder. A report from the U.S. Institute of Medicine estimated in 2015 that as many as 90% of people with these illnesses remain undiagnosed. With this in mind, Madeline says she got lucky to get her diagnosis when she did. She was in her early 30s, it was the 1990s, and she had just moved to Vancouver. Well, it was a bit of an adventure because I didn't have a GP at the time. I, I'd sort of, I've only been in town about six months. Um, I graduated university. I came out here to start working. I won an award for uh, one play I did. I got nominated for an award for another play. I had an agent saying, we just need you to do a film course and then we're good to go. I mean, my life, <laughs> that was pretty exciting, you know? And then, and then I got this flu. I actually got it. <laughs> during the play I won the award for. I'm like sweating like a demon. And then this flu just wouldn't go away. Eventually, a doctor suggested Madeline might have mono, the so-called kissing disease she'd endured for months as a child. She says, I don't know what to tell you, because this looks like mono. I'm going to test you. And I'm like, go ahead. You can't get mono twice. And of course, I had mono. Clear as day in the blood test. And she tested me every month for a year. And the blood test came back positive for a solid year. Imagine just having a flu for a year, like the fever, you know, and I, and I was sort of still thinking like I would still be able to work. I did like a community theater play and thought, oh, I'll still be able to work. And then finally the blood test came back negative, but it wasn't getting better. Madeline got colds that would last months and months, and her energy levels just kept dropping lower. Researchers had recently linked the mono-causing Epstein-Barr virus and the condition then known as chronic fatigue syndrome. That there was a clear line between that virus and chronic fatigue syndrome. And I didn't know, I mean, I now know how difficult it is to get a diagnosis, but because those articles had just come out, because they had all of the year-long blood tests. Of course, it was the second round of mono, because like the first time, again, they test you every month, eight months of mono when I was 12. And so I had a clear line to that. But there was no clear treatment and no evidence-based guidelines for doctors to follow. No one warned Madeline that pushing through her exhaustion would make her worse and even take years off her life. Because nobody was telling me anything about that, because nobody understood the disease. Nobody was saying you must keep your energy, you know, your energy expenditure small. So I was just like, I'm going to walk more. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to be better. And I was always sicker, always. And then I had to finally put my big girl panties on and say, you're not getting better. Like you're getting worse and worse and worse. 
It wasn't until three years after her diagnosis she was told that the hallmark symptom of ME-CFS, the extreme crashes in energy after physical activity, known as post-exertional malaise, was to be avoided at all costs. In 2017, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control quietly stopped recommending a gradual increase in physical activity as an ME-CFS treatment. The move followed a 2015 report commissioned by a number of federal agencies, including, among others, the Department of Health, the CDC, FDA, and Social Security Administration. It managed to get a lot of important things on the public record. So these patients have real symptoms, they deserve real care and real therapy. The Institute of Medicine's committee released its recommendations at an organized press conference and took questions from advocates, journalists, clinicians, and patients like this man, who wondered if the spotlight might cause a flood of new patients being diagnosed. How in the world are we going to be able to initiate research and catch up to be able to treat? Because there's no approved treatments for the illness. I know that there are representatives here from other federal agencies. How are they going to ramp up or gear up to be able to address treating whatever it's going to be, 50% more people or 80% more patients? You know, right now, what are a handful of, of experts? Now in 2021, ME-CFS experts are finding themselves overwhelmed with COVID-19 patients who aren't getting better. Certainly, um, long COVID patients, particularly in the beginning, experienced that denial and, oh, you're just depressed. This is just the anxiety from the pandemic. You're just a woman. <laughs> um, that may still be happening, but it's happening less and less because of the numbers, right? I mean, the numbers are staggering. This is Dr. Lucinda Bateman. She's been focused on the causes, symptoms, and treatments of ME-CFS for the last 30 years. She says the sheer scale of COVID-19 is forcing medical professionals and universities to finally look these diseases in the eye, but there's still no real funding for research. She earned her medical degree from Johns Hopkins University and now runs the Bateman Horn Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, where she's trying to help as many people with these diseases as possible. The center hosts research, clinical care, and she's seeing a lot of COVID long-haul patients these days. It is the same. And I mean, I'll just say, we've misunderstood what ME-CFS is. ME-CFS is a, a symptom description of a state people are many months to years after these inciting events. And there are several different pathways to get there. We know many different post-viral syndromes can land people in that place. So to say it's not the same thing to me means you don't understand what ME-CFS is. You know, 80% of the long COVID patients we see meet the ME-CFS criteria. While doctors are starting to take long haulers more seriously, old ideas are still killing people who got sick with ME-CFS before the pandemic. Bateman and other experts say doctors tend to behave like they know what's going on and overestimate their understanding of these illnesses. I asked medical schools and regulators how they're preparing medical students to help people with ME-CFS, and I was told doctors already encounter this during their residency and clinical rotations, and that training is sufficient. But you may recall Madeline telling us in episode one about her doctor, who recently told her her pain was subjective. Um, but when somebody says it's subjective, what they mean is we think you're stupid, weak or lying. And that's what it means. And so that needs to stop being said. Dr. Bateman herself has faced discrimination in the medical field her entire career. 
a lack of funding and grants, medical peers distancing themselves from her. And she's seen the impacts in her own family. Uh, when I came back from my medical training at Johns Hopkins, uh, came back to Utah to start my internal medicine residency. Um, it was great because I was in the same city where my sister lived and I hadn't seen her for a long time. She was married and had kids. And she had developed this strange illness while I was away at medical training. She was healthy before I left. Dr. Bateman's sister, Shauna Bateman-Horn, had mono, a streptococcus infection, and even miscarriages. So she had a really um, you know, difficult medical period, but never recovered. I was a brand new doctor and I thought, oh, I should be able to figure this out, right? <laughs> I'm completely unjaded and I didn't become her doctor, but I tried to guide her. And I was just incensed when doctors finally gave up on her and, you know, told her she just needed to take a night class and get a broader life. And I was just mystified that she couldn't exercise. So she would get a little bit better and a little bit better. And then every time she tried to start walking or doing something that would, you know, be an, an energy expending activity, she would relapse and go back to bed. Um, so that started my interest in the disease. That was in 1987. I didn't know it wasn't okay for a doctor to be interested in this illness, right? I just started very um, enthusiastic. Unfortunately, Shauna Bateman Horn died in 2001 with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. A 2012 report from the U.S. National Cancer Institute showed ME-CFS patients are more likely to die of some cancers, including non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Through it all, the bias, lack of supports, and judgments, Bateman kept her head down and tried to work within the medical expectations and parameters of the system so as not to become fully alienated from the scientific community. She's helped thousands of patients, and 30 years in, she says she's finally earning the respect of fellow medical researchers. As COVID-19 patients have been pouring in, others in the field seem more willing to collaborate with her than ever before. I have to credit my education at Johns Hopkins uh, Medical School. It's one of the leading medical institutions in the U.S. And it was just pummeled in us to think outside the box and be leaders, right? Don't just follow the crowd. You know, a graduate from Johns Hopkins should be questioning and pushing the envelope. So uh, we even had a class on that. One of our you know, classes as medical students is how do you, you know, create new thought? How do you push the envelope and become someone who can be a leader? Um, and then when I got to my residency program, it was much more about towing the line, being as good as all other programs, not stepping outside the box, you know, learning how to do things the right way and being shamed if you if you didn't. We will talk more about treatments later, because they exist, but many are not a part of mainstream medicine, so doctors either don't trust them or they're unaware of the options. Dr. Bateman says those doctors are going to have to think outside of the box, because there are no evidence-based guidelines for treating ME-CFS or long-haul COVID. Health authorities and medical regulators have always misunderstood or ignored viral and fatigue-related illnesses. There isn't going to be evidence-based guidance about how to treat people. They're just going to have to suck it up, right, <laughs> and start taking care of people. And that's the trickle down from that. People with ME-CFS who've been sick all this time are going to, by hook or by crook, more physicians are going to be exposed to dysautonomias and sleep disruption and cognitive impairment and energy, uh, low energy and exercise intolerance. It will happen. 
A lot of ME-CFS patients use the term gaslighting to describe how they feel, saying the healthcare system is gaslighting them. The phrase comes from a play that was later made into a 1940 film, Gaslight, in which a con man, Paul, psychologically abuses his wife, Bella, to try to make her think she's going insane. He hides items like pencils and pictures and then accuses her of stealing them. He causes the gas lights in their home to dim and then tells her she's imagining things when she notices. Why do you persist in lying to me, Bella? It's the truth. Bella, if you're not lying, there's only one alternative. You're losing your wits. Just take a look at the MECFS hashtag on Twitter and you'll see other patients using the term gaslighting. One CFS patient who was interviewed for a recent article in The Atlantic says, The illness itself is horrible and ravaging, but being told you've made it up over and over again is by far the worst of it. 28-year-old Jennifer Bria was studying for a PhD at Harvard when she first got sick with a high fever. She didn't go to the doctor, expecting to get better in just a few days. This is from her 2017 TED Talk. After the fever broke, for three weeks I was so dizzy, I couldn't leave my house. I would walk straight into door frames. I had to hug the walls just to make it to the bathroom. That spring, I got infection after infection. And every time I went to the doctor, he said there was absolutely nothing wrong. I know it sounds silly, but you have to find a way to explain things like this to yourself. And so I thought maybe I was just aging. Maybe this is what it's like to be on the other side of 25. Faced with few options, Bria chose to document her experience. She directed a film called Unrest, which captured not only her story, but the stories of MECFS patients all over the world. From as early as I can remember, I wanted to swallow the world whole. Dreaming about all the places I would go and the things I would see. That's my husband, Omar. I met him when I was 25. <laughs> we were both at Harvard, getting our PhDs. Three months later, I knew I wanted to marry him. Omar, holding the back of the kayak, flailing all over the place to try to get in. Hopefully this is just a kayaking trip, not a metaphor. I mean, sure, we all know nothing lasts forever. I just thought I would have more time. Bria's symptoms quickly worsened. At times, her brain wouldn't let her draw a circle or even speak. One specialist after another tried unsuccessfully to find a diagnosis, until finally a neurologist told her she had something called conversion disorder, meaning he believed she was converting emotional stress into physical symptoms. He told me that everything, the fevers, the sore throats, the sinus infection, all of the gastrointestinal, neurological, and cardiac symptoms were being caused by some distant emotional trauma that I could not remember. A PhD candidate at Oxford University was credited for turning public opinion against the MECFS community when he hung his dissertation on the theory that an outbreak of the disease in London in 1955 was mass epidemic hysteria. Because the paper made its way into the British Medical Journal, it made a big splash and funding did dry up. But that psychiatrist was borrowing from thousands of years of predatory medical and superstitious practices when he categorized those MECFS patients as hysterical. The Roman physician Galen thought that hysteria was caused by sexual deprivation in particularly passionate women. The Greeks thought that the uterus would literally dry up and wander around the body in search of moisture. 
pressing on internal organs. Yes. <laughs> Hysteria has been used to explain away everything from difficult periods and menopause to viral illnesses and depression. In ancient times, it's described as causing tremors, convulsions, and even paralysis. And of course, it's almost always been women who've been deemed hysterical. Virgins, widows, and single women were thought to be prone to a buildup of toxins in their reproductive organs. As you can imagine, much of the so-called treatment these women received was abusive and inappropriate. It could leave them traumatized, disabled, stigmatized, and even more isolated or institutionalized. It might be tempting to dismiss all of this as superstitions and mistakes from a time before modern science, but University of Waterloo historian Dr. Jane Nicholas says these ideas never really went away. They just morphed a little along the way. They might have lost that idea of like the wandering womb, right? That would show up in different places in women's bodies and then appear as a problem. But even as they know that those organs are rooted in a place in women's bodies, they still see them as inherently troublesome, right? And that's why when, you know, something would go wrong with a woman's body, sometimes doctors would say things like marriage and motherhood will set the course straight. And those are, of course, cultural values that get laid down in medicine in the 19th century is that idea that women's bodies are inherently problematic and that women can feign things, right? And that their symptoms are perhaps vague, um, you know, which lots of the body's symptoms are, but that means that they don't get taken up and they don't get believed. In the 19th century, the Canadian Lancet told doctors they could treat a hysterical attack by applying pressure on a patient's ovaries, or by giving them drugs to make them vomit, thus taking away, quote, the opportunity to do anything else other than be thoroughly nauseated. Into the 20th century, the spectrum of fatigue diseases, including ME-CFS and fibromyalgia, are seen as ailments of the middle and upper class. Weak-minded women and their irritable uterus were falling victim to overindulgence, thought psychologists, and they believed too much comfort and luxury would drive women insane. Hysteria was also seen as a problem of over-civilization. And so women were too emotional because they had been over-civilized by sort of pampered lives which was also, again, a judgment on women's lives, even though they were perhaps meeting the expectations, those social expectations around marriage and motherhood, it could still go awry if it was like too far or too much, which ignored what was actually happening in women's lives. Um, but what it did is it also helped people explain or legitimize those racial hierarchies they had. This idea of over-civilized women falling victim to their indulgences, of course, didn't apply equally to women of color who were ill or in pain. They were seen as less human, less deserving of pain relief, and often accused of seeking drugs or malingering. Remember that clip of comedian Ricky Gervais from episode one? He was mocking ME patients as overprivileged layabouts. Not the crippling wasting disease. Oh no, ME. That's the one where don't feel like going to work today. <laughs> Some of us might remember ME by another name, the so-called yuppie flu, a new form of hypochondria allegedly invented by young urban professionals, at least as it was described in a 1990 Newsweek article. Gervais perpetuates this stereotype in his bit, and he takes it a step further illustrating how Black, Indigenous, and people of colour are often erased from medical history. Third world countries, you'd never hear a starving African complaining about having ME. Do you know what I mean? <laughs>
ME absolutely is an issue in Africa, and some studies have even found higher rates of the diseases in African countries, possibly due to higher rates of viruses like malaria and typhoid. You probably don't expect a stand-up set to be meticulously fact-checked, but spreading misinformation to back up racist stereotypes is another thing. Wanda Sykes is a black comedian who's shared her own experiences with racial and gender bias through her stand-up and on Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. White people get opioids like they Tic Tacs. <laughs> it amazes me how many opioids you motherfuckers have. I had a double mastectomy. You know what they sent my black ass home with? I boo fucking profin. <laughs> Sykes tells Oliver doctors and nurses need bias training, and we need more people of color working in hospitals in general. And finally, until we do those first two things, you've got to advocate for yourself. And if that doesn't work, don't worry, I've got a backup plan. It's called, bring a white man. <laughs> Historian Jane Nicholas is familiar with how these harmful ideas have hurt non-white people in Canada. As negatively racialized women and women of color were seen as being more primitive and more capable of handling that pain and then less deserving of pain management, right? And so it plays out in all of, of these ways. But the big problem is that this gets written as a problem of the body as opposed to a social and cultural problem. Last year, a member of the Atikamekw Nation in Quebec, 37-year-old Joyce Echewan, broadcast a Facebook Live video from her hospital bed. As she screamed in pain, nurses taunted her, saying she was stupid as hell and only good for sex. I did it by Eshawan died later that same day when her lungs filled with fluid, triggering two inquiries into the actions of hospital staff. Last week, an emergency doctor testified that the mother of seven had severe cardiomyopathy. Another doctor testified she had rheumatic heart disease, which can follow rheumatic fever, a severe illness usually brought on by Streptococcus bacteria. He also told the inquiry that her condition had gone untreated since 2014. Here in British Columbia, a recent report revealed widespread systemic racism in healthcare. An investigation was called by the government after allegations doctors were allegedly playing a Price is Right-style game, where they would guess the blood alcohol levels of Indigenous patients. Former judge Mary Ellen Terpel-Lafond headed up the investigation. And in the fall of 2020, she announced that while she had not been able to substantiate the claims, at least not in the widespread manner it was reported, she warned things were much, much worse. Meaning if there had been simply a game played away from patients, as difficult as that would have been to make that finding, what I found in fact was at the point of care, there is direct prejudice and racism touching all points of care and impacting Indigenous people in BC. It was reported by some patients they had painkillers withheld, sometimes with an explicit reference to a stereotype that Indigenous people are drug-seeking or somehow feel pain differently. And more than two-thirds of Indigenous women reported having been denied pain or other medications when needed. And I need to note that we found with all of the data and information that came forward in this review that Indigenous women are disproportionately impacted by racism in healthcare and racism in healthcare contributes to The results of this continued impact of colonialism include higher suicide rates, reduced life expectancy, increased rates of chronic disease, and higher infant mortality. Indigenous people told Terpel Lafon's investigators they don't trust the healthcare system anymore, and many avoid the hospital, no matter how sick they get.
Like Indigenous people who experience discrimination in place of care, many people with disabilities have also lost trust in their healthcare systems, and some do quietly degrade without ever finding help. And yeah, I mean, if if you've lived through that for many years, how do you even trust doctors anymore? Maria Rovito is a PhD candidate at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I'm specifically looking in my dissertation at Sylvia Plath, Mad Women, uh, Literature, Disability Studies. But my more broad areas of research are Disability Studies, American Literature, and Medical Humanities. Before she was eventually diagnosed with endometriosis, which can be incredibly painful, she was told repeatedly that her pain was just period cramps. I am writing a paper about the history of endometriosis. Endometriosis in before World War II was seen as a mental illness. It was grouped into hysteria. And so I'm, I'm looking at these women who lived in the 19th century and who had endometriosis and have this very real pain and they're just seen as hysteric. And oh my God, I just get so upset. I get so upset. And I, I think by advocating for this stuff, we are going to help people in the future who will need care and who, need, who will need um, treatment options. Rovito is writing her dissertation, Applying Disability and Mad Woman Theory to Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar. The main character, Esther, was a semi-autobiographical depiction of Plath. And after Plath killed herself in 1963, psychologists, literary critics, and a host of others have attempted to use the novel to pathologize her illness posthumously. Rovito says all that serves to do is dredge up old sexist ideas about so-called feminized disorders. For scholars who use these uh, diagnoses in their work to um, claim Plath was I don't, schizophrenic, had OCD, depression, etc., I was just like you know, what does this really offer, Plath? And quite frankly, this is the worst of all, is they've looked at Plath, her menstrual history, and they're like, no, her um, diagnosis should have been PMS or premenstrual dysphoric disorder. And to me, I just find that the worst of all because they're just brushing off her, her what she experienced as some sort of women's issue and I don't know. I suffer from PMTD too. I like, I will say it's not fun. I don't, I hate it. I've had it my whole life, but you know, I just feel like if we're brushing women's issues off as some sort of psychological case, then what, what does that leave us? Gender bias and bias toward a binary male-female understanding of illnesses is a large part of how ME-CFS became so stigmatized, but its stigmatization has made it one of the most undertreated diseases in history. I think Madeline is a good example of that too, you know, how doctors aren't listening to her, the government isn't listening to her. Madeline is still fighting for the provincial government to provide the care and support she needs, but she's been denied over and over, despite her team of supporters pleading directly with the minister in charge of disability services. And then it highlights to me that my country wants me dead. I don't know how else to feel about this other than my country wants me dead. My country is saying, hurry up and die. And if I sound salty and I sound angry and I like, how am I not? How am I not? those things. <laughs> it's not fair. And I 
know the world isn't a fair place. But. We've asked the ministries in charge of disability and health care coverage a number of questions, and we've been met with the same brick wall that Madeline's facing. We asked how the ministries were preparing for an influx of ME-CFS patients with long-haul COVID, and how the province was working to prevent people with treatable illnesses from dying. We didn't get a lot of answers, but what we did learn, we'll share with you in the next episode. In the meantime, this stonewalling has made Madeline feel like all of the work her and her team of advocates have done over the last year has maybe been a waste of time. This is the worst. And not just the illness. The illness is terrible. But knowing that it's fine, it's fine that I'm dying for absolutely ridiculous reasons and if I sound salty and I sound angry and I like how am I not how am I not those things every treatment drains Madeline's bank account a little bit more it could be empty by mid-June the treatments stop and her decline will likely be rapid and painful enough to kill her before her scheduled assisted death in July I asked Dr. Lucinda Bateman from the Bateman Horn Center in Utah how many patients die of ME-CFS. She says it's hard to know because we just don't keep track well enough. But she told me about one woman with severe ME who ended up in hospice care for what would have been the final year of her life. Her quality of life was so poor. She had such bad pain. You know, she could barely stand up, just massive symptoms. And she was by herself. And she wanted to go on hospice. And she said, if not, I'm just going to stop eating anyway, um, because I'm too sick and I don't have anyone to bring me food and make me food. And so I got on the phone and I found, I called a several hospice and I called one really nice hospice group, but I talked to this one very compassionate doctor who was the medical director. And she said, do people die from ME-CFS? She didn't know anything about ME-CFS. And I said, well, we don't really know, but, but this person's going to die. Because if she doesn't get help, well, I had to say, yes, she's going to die or they wouldn't take her, right? They wouldn't take her just to help her. So they took her. Um, they took over all of her care. She had meals. She had liberal pain medication. Um, they helped her if she was constipated. Well, a year later, they discharged her from, from care because she was so much better. She could go back to her house. And her depression was better. She no longer felt like there was no reason to live and that she was going to die. She'd gotten stronger simply because she had compassionate care. So now she's back in her apartment and she's plugging along and her family members are, you know, helping out a little bit more. They were kind of distant and unhelpful. So that was a, a little uh, lesson to me, right, about the kind of care we need to give to people. And the cause of death, as far as we can tell from research, that there are more suicides than people who die of their disease from the small amount of data we'd be able to collect. So that ought to place a heavy responsibility on society, right, to, uh, to caretake these very, very sick people. Madeline isn't asking for end-of-life care. She's asking for a little bit more financial support and believes even a small amount of relief, like cleaning services or meal deliveries, could help her recover with regular treatment. If you're single and you don't have family who can take care of you, um, there are very few medical services that are adequate, right, to help you with the basics of life. And, and those people go downhill because they, what energy they have, they have to use, you know, carrying up groceries or, 
doing whatever, even preparing food and those kind of things. Bateman and other MECFS experts are trying to get the word out to long-haul COVID patients who are still in the early stages of the disease that the more help you can get, the less energy you can expend, the better quality of life you will have in the long run, and the higher chance you have at recovery. But the BC government won't provide people with MECFS or fibromyalgia with basic assistance in their homes. Because the disease is completely misunderstood, there's a lack of government support and what's available doesn't align with what patients need. So if you're wondering why I'm headed for MAID on quality of life stuff, that's why. I was thinking about how, how can the Ministry of Social Development and Poverty Reduction, like how can they say with fibro and CFS, oh, it's an episodic illness, so you don't need home support or you don't need housekeeping you don't need blah, blah, blah. Like, if you had any sense of what it's like, it's definitely a human rights issue. A few weeks ago, Madeline went out on her mobility scooter to sit under the fleeting cherry blossoms. You know, I feel really sad nowadays. I feel really, um, it's hard. Like, I love spring and I look at spring and think, is this my last spring? Like, everything I'm looking at, is this my last? So I went out to, like, enjoy the blossoms as much as I could. At this point, nothing is for sure. Madeline is on track to run out of money in a matter of days, and she's still scheduled to die in July. She may have already seen her last cherry blossoms. And and if you cherish these little moments, like looking at blossoms or a smile from a neighbor or a card from a friend, like these are things that can be anchors through the difficult times. Because even if you're not PWD on assistance, life can get hard sometimes. As difficult as the last few years have been, Madeline does have some advice for us. I understand that it's really hard to look our mortality in the eye. And I understand it's easier to say, oh, they must have done something wrong, or oh, if they just tried harder, if they were just more positive. And and I do, I know it's a difficult thing I'm asking our listeners, our, our dear beloved listeners to do. But if you do look at your mortality in the eye, In my experience, the gift of that is to cherish every day. In episode three, we'll hear how Madeline and countless others are specifically failed by their governments, how the dehumanizing assumptions we heard about in this episode provide a foundation for bad policy, and how austerity has legislated disabled people into poverty and death. Episode three drops in two weeks. But there's more. We're going to post our first bonus episode next week. It involves the alleged clinical use of vibrators, yes, vibrators, and a tall tale that made its way to Hollywood and beyond. To listen, just support the show at patreon.com slash umbrella podcasting. Follow us on Twitter at IamMadelinePod, where you can find information on how to help Madeline through her online fundraiser, and where we would love to connect with you. I Am Madeline is co-produced by Kelvin Gawley and me, Ash Kelly, on the unceded land of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish peoples. Lee Rosevere composed the music in our show. Thanks, Lee, and thank you for listening. Listening.